Administrative Law, General Principles. Administrative law is that branch of modern law under which the executive department of the government acting in a quasi-legislative or quasi-judicial capacity interferes with the conduct of the individual for the purpose of promoting the well-being of the community as under laws regulating public corporations, business affected with public interests, professions, trades and callings, rates and prices, laws for the protection of the public health and safety and the promotion of the public convenience and advantage. As a rule, an administrative law enunciated in the case of Season versus Pangarangamuyan provides that in the absence of palpable error or grave abuse of discretion, the court would be law to substitute its own judgment for that of the administrative agency entrusted with the enforcement and implementation of the law. This principle, however, is subject to limitations. Administrative decisions may be reviewed by the courts upon issuing that the decision is vitiated by fraud, imposition, or mistake. Administrative agencies. Agency includes any department, bureau, office, commission, authority, or officer of the national government authorized by law or executive order to make rules, issue licenses, grant rights, or privileges, and adjudicate cases. Research institutions with respect to licensing functions. Government corporations with respect to functions regulating private rights, privileges, occupation, or business. And officials in the exercise of disciplinary power as provided by law by the Constitution, by law, or by authority of law. In the case of Eugenio versus CSC, CSB was created by PD number 1. It cannot be disputed, therefore, that as the CSB was created by law, it can only be abolished by the legislature. This follows an unbroken stream of rulings that the creation and abolition of public officers is primarily a legislative function. The essential autonomous character of the CSB is not negated by its attachment to Respondent Commission. By said attachment, CSB was not made to fall within the control of Respondent Commission. Under the Administrative Code of 1987, the purpose of attaching one functionally interrelated government agency to another is to attain policy and program coordination. While in the case of Delaliana versus Alba, the abolition of an office within the competence of a legitimate body, if done in good faith, suffers from no infirmity. It is a well-known rule also that valid abolition of offices is neither removal nor separation of the incumbents. If the abolition is void, the incumbent is deemed never to have ceased to hold office. The test remains whether the abolition is in good faith. As the element inconspicuously present in the assessment of BP-129, then the lack of merit of this petition becomes even more apparent. Reorganization As a general rule, the reorganization is carried out in good faith if it is for the purpose of economy or to make bureaucracy more efficient. In that event, no dismissal or uh, uh, separation actually occurs because this position itself ceases to exist and in that case the security of tenure would not be a Chinese wall be that as it may if the abolition which is nothing else but is separation or removal is done for political reasons or purposely to defeat security of tenure or otherwise not in good faith no valid abolition takes place and whether abolition is done is void ab initio. There is an invalid abolition as where there is merely a change of nomenclature of positions or where claims of economy are belied by the existence of ample funds. In Larin versus Executive Secretary, does the President have the power to reorganize the BIR or to issue the question AO number 132? Yes. 
there should be a legal basis and such should be in good faith. Section 20, Book 3 of AO 292 on the residual powers of the President is one such legal basis which speaks of such other powers vested in the President under the law. What law then which gives him the power to reorganize? It is PD number 1772 which amended PD 1416. This decree expressly grant the President of the Philippines the continuing authority to reorganize the national government which includes the power to group, consolidate bureaus and agencies, to abolish offices, to transfer functions, to create and classify functions, services and activities, and to standardize salaries and materials. Is the reorganization of BIR pursuant to EO number 132 tainted with bad faith? Yes, a reading of some of the provisions of the question EO number 132 clearly leads us to an inescapable conclusion that there are circumstances considered as evidence of bad faith in the reorganization of the BIR. Section 112 of said executive order abolishes an office while another one performing substantially the same function is created. The creation of services and division in the BIR resulted in a significant increase in the number of positions in the said bureau. In the case of Bagawisan versus National Tobacco Authority, it is important to emphasize that the question executive orders number 29 and number 36 have not abolished the National Tobacco Administration but merely mandated its reorganization through the streamlining or reduction of its personnel. Article 7, Section 17 of the Constitution expressly grants the President control of all executive departments, bureaus, agencies, and offices which may justify an executive action to inactive the functions of a particular office or to carry out reorganization measures under a broad authority of law. The first sentence of the law is an express grant to the President of a continuing authority to reorganize the administrative structure of the office of the President. In the present instance involving neither an abolition nor transfer of offices, the assailed action is mere reorganization under the general provisions of the law, consisting mainly of streamlining the NTA in the interest of simplicity, economy, and efficiency. It is an act well within the authority of the President, motivated and carried out according to the findings of the appellate court in good faith, a factual assessment that this court could only but accept. In the case of kapisanan ng mga kawanin ng ERB versus Barin, abolition and removal are mutually exclusive concepts. From a legal standpoint, there is no occupant in an abolished office. Where there is no occupant, there is no tenure to speak of. Thus, impairment of the constitutional guarantee of security and tenure does not arise in the abolition of an office. On the other hand, removal implies that the office and its related positions subsist and that the occupants are merely separated from their positions. After comparing the functions of the ERB and the ERC, we find that the ERC indeed assumed the functions of the ERB. However, the overlap in the function of the ERB and of the ERC does not mean that there is no valid abolition of the ERB. The ERC has new and expanded functions which are intended to meet the specific needs of the deregulated power industry. Because of the expansion of the ERC's function and concerns, there was a valid abolition of the ERB. Thus, there is no merit to curb the allegation that there is an impairment of the security of tenure of the ERB's employees. In Banda it Albertus Elmita, in Buklod ng Kawaning EIIB versus Samura, the court pointed out that Executive Order Number no. 292 or the Administrative Code of 1987 gives the President continuing authority to reorganize and redefine the functions of the Office of the President. 
It is undisputed that the NPO as an agency that is part of the office of the press secretary is part of the office of the president. In the case at bar, there was neither an abolition of the NPO nor a removal of any of the functions to be transferred to another agency. Under the ASEL Executive Order No. 378, the NPO remains the main printing arm of the government uh, for all kinds of government forms and publications, but in the interest of greater economy encouraging efficiency and profitability, it must now compete with the private sector for certain government printing jobs. At most, there was a mere alteration of the main function of the uh, National Printing uh, Office by limiting the exclusivity of its printing responsibility to election forms. In the case of Boy Scouts of the Philippines versus COA, Section 20, Chapter 8, Title 6, Book 4 of EO 292 classified Banco Central ng Pilipinas as an attached agency. The BSP is a public corporation or government agency or instrumentality which judicial personality which does not fall within the constitutional provision in Article 12, Section 16, notwithstanding the amendments to its charter. Public corporations are treated by law as agencies or instrumentalities of the government which are not subject to the test of ownership or control and economic liability. Section 16, Article 12 should not be construed so as to prohibit Congress from creating public corporations. The test of economic viability does not apply to public corporations dealing with governmental functions to which category WSP belongs. The ownership and control test is likewise irrelevant for a public corporation like the BSP. To reiterate the relationship of the BSP and a tax agency to the government through the DEX is defined in the Revised Administrative Code of 1987. The BSP meets the minimum statutory requirements of an attached government agency as the DEX secretary sits at the BSP board ex officio, thus facilitating the policy and program coordination between the BSP and the DEX. In BIHA, Senior BESO CA, attachment uh, open agency to a department is one of the three administrative relationships which are uh, mentioned in Book 4, Chapter 7 of the Administrative Code of 1987, the other two being supervision and control and administrative supervision. Attachment refers to the lateral relationship between the department or its equivalent and the attached agency or corporation for purposes of policy and program coordination. The coordination shall be accomplished by having the department represented in the governing board of the attached agency or corporation either as chairman or as a member with or without voting rights if this is permitted by the charter. Having the attached corporation or agency comply with the system of periodic reporting which shall reflect the progress of programs and projects and having the department or its equivalent provide general policies through its representative in the board which shall serve as the framework for the internal policies of the attached corporation or agency. With respect to administrative matters, the independence of an attached agency from department control and supervision is further enforced by the fact that even an agency under a department's administrative supervision is free from department interference with respect to appointments and other personal actions in accordance with the decentralization of personal functions under the Administrative Code of 1987. Moreover, the Administrative Code explicitly provides that Chapter 8 of Book uh, uh, 4 on Supervision and Control shall not apply to chartered institutions attached to a department. Hence, the inescapable conclusion is that, with respect to the management of personnel, an attached agency is, to a certain extent, free from departmental interference and control. 
In Malaga versus Pinatsos Jr., instrumentality refers to any agency of the national government not integrated within the department framework, vested with special functions or jurisdiction by law, endowed with some, if not all, corporate powers, administering special funds, and enjoying operational autonomy, usually through a charter. This term includes regulatory agencies, chartered institutions, and government-owned or controlled corporations. Chartered institution refers to any agency organized or operating under a special charter and vested by law with functions relating to specific constitutional policies or objectives. This term includes the state universities and colleges and the monetary authority of the state. In Luzon Development Bank versus Association of Luzon Development Bank employees, the voluntary arbitrator, whether acting solely or in a panel, enjoys in law the status of quasi-judicial agency, but independent of and apart from the NLRC since his decisions are not appealable to the latter. The voluntary arbitrator no less performs a state function pursuant to a governmental power delegated to him under the provisions, therefore, in the Labor Code, and he fail, falls, therefore, within the contemplation of the term instrumentality. In the case of Iron and Steel Authority versus CA, the uh, Iron Steel Authority, in fact, appears to be a non-incorporated agency or instrumentality of the GRP. It is common knowledge that other agencies or instrumentalities of the government of the Republic are cast in corporate form, that is to say, are incorporated agencies or instrumentalities, sometimes with and at other times without capital stock, and accordingly vested with a juridical personality distinct uh, from the personality of the Republic. We consider that the ISE is properly regarded as an agent or delegate of the Republic of the Philippines. The Republic itself is a body corporate and juridical person vested with a full uh, panoply of powers and attributes which are compendiously described as legal personality. When the statutory term of an unincorporated agency expires, the powers, duties, and functions as well as the assets and liabilities of that agency revert back to and are reassumed by the Republic. In the instant case, ISA instituted the expropriation proceedings in its capacity as an agent or delegate or representative of the Republic pursuant to its authority under PD 272. The present expropriation suit was brought on behalf of and of the benefit of the Republic as the principal of ISA, the principal or the real property or real party, and the interest is thus the Republic and not the National Steel Corporation, even though the latter may be an ultimate user of the properties involved should the contamination should be eventually successful. From the foregoing premises, it follows that the Republic is entitled to be substituted in the expropriation proceedings as party plaintiff in lieu of ISA and statutory term of ISA having expired. In Republic versus CA, Petitioner Sugar Regulatory Administration may not lawfully bring an action on behalf of the Republic and that the Office of the Government Corporate Council does not have the authority to represent said petitioner in this case. It is apparent that its charter does not grant the SRA the power to represent the Republic in suits filed by or against the latter. It is a fundamental rule that an administrative agency has only such power as are expressly granted to it by law and those that are necessarily implied in the exercise thereof. 
the power to represent the Republic in any suit filed by or against it having been withheld from SRA, it follows that the latter cannot institute the instant petition. This conclusion does not, however, mean that the SRA cannot sue and be sued. This power can be implied from its power to enter, make and execute routinary contracts. The Court of Appeals also correctly ruled that the uh, OGCC can represent neither the SRA nor the Republic. We do not, however, share the view that only the Office of the Solicitor General can represent the SRA. Under Section 35, Chapter 12 of Title 3 of Book uh, 4 of the Administrative Code of 1987, the Solicitor General is the lawyer of the government, its agencies, and instrumentalities in its officials or agents. When confronted with a situation where one government office takes an adverse position against another government agency, as in this case, the Solicitor General should not refrain from performing his duty as the lawyer of the government. It is incumbent upon him to present to the court what he considers should legally uphold the best interests of the government, although it may run counter to a client's position. In such an instance, the government office adversely affected with the position taken by the Solicitor General, if it still believes in the merit of its case may appear on its own behalf through its legal personnel or representative. Consequently, the SRA need, no, need not or need not be represented by the OSG. It may appear on its own behalf through its local legal personnel or representative since the SRA is either a UECC nor a subsidiary thereof. OGCC does not have the authority to represent it. In Lison versus uh, Ombudsman, to be considered a UCC, three requisites must concur, namely, first, any agency organized as a stock or non-stock corporation. Second, vested with functions relating to public needs, whether governmental or proprietary in nature, entered owned by the government directly or through its instrumentalities, either wholly or where applicable, as in the case of stock corporation, to the extent of at least 51% of its capital stock. In Community Rural Bank of Gimba versus Talabira case, in administrative law, supervision means overseeing or the power or authority of an officer to see, to see that subordinate officers perform their duties. If the latter fail or neglect to fulfill them, the former may take such an action or step as prescribed by law to make them perform such duties. Control, on the other hand, means the power of an officer to alter or modify or nullify or set aside what a subordinate officer had done in the performance of his duties and to substitute the judgment of the former for that of the latter. Review as an act of supervision and control by the Justice Secretary over the Fiscal's and Prosecutor's fines basis in the doctrine of exhaustion of administrative remedies which hold that mistakes, abuses, or negligence committed in the initial steps of an administrative activity or by an administrative agency should be corrected by higher administrative authorities and not directly uh, by the courts. In short, the Secretary of Justice, who has the power of supervision and control over prosecuting officers, is the ultimate authority who decides which of the conflicting theories of the complainants and the respondents should be believed. The provincial or city prosecutor has neither the personality nor the legal authority to review or overrule the decision of the Secretary. In the present case, the accused filed their motion for investigation on November 29, 2000, about three months after August 15, 2000. Resolution of the Secretary denying with finality their motion for reconsideration of the denial of their petition for reviews. Clearly, therefore, it was grossly erroneous for respondent judge to order the reinvestigation of the case. 
of by the prosecutor. This action enabled the latter to reprobate and reverse the secretary's resolution. In granting the motion for investigation, respondent effectively demolished the DOJ's power of control and supervision over prosecutors. Important case, Biraugo versus the Philippine Truth Commission, re-power of control, paid prosecution clause, and power to investigate. The creation of the PTC is not justified by the President's power of control. Control is essentially the power to alter or modify or nullify or set aside what a subordinate officer has done in the performance of his duties and to substitute the judgment of the former with that of the latter. Clearly, the power of control is entirely different from the power to create public offices. The former is inherent in the executive while the latter finds basis from either a valid delegation from Congress or his inherent duty to faithfully execute the laws. Indeed, the executive is given much leeway in ensuring that our laws are faithfully executed. As stated above, the power of the President are not limited to those specific powers under the Constitution. One of the recognized power of the President granted pursuant to this constitutionally mandate duty is the power to create an ad hoc committees on the charge that Executive Order No. 1 transgresses the power of Congress to appropriate funds for the operation of public office, suffice it to say that there will be no appropriation but only an allotment or allocation of existing funds already appropriated. Accordingly, there is no usurpation on the part of the Executive of the power of Congress to appropriate funds. Further, there is no need to specify the amount to be earmarked for the operation of the Commission because, in the words of the Solicitor General, whatever funds the Congress has provided for the office of the President will be the very source of the funds for the Commission. Moreover, since the amount that would be allocated to the PTC shall be subject to existing auditing rules and regulations, there is no impropriety in the funding. The President's power to conduct investigations to ensure that laws are faithfully executed is well recognized. It flows from the Faithful Execution Clause of the Constitution under Article 7, Section 17 thereof. Powers of Administrative Agencies In the case of SMART versus NTC, Administrative agencies possess quasi-legislative or rulemaking powers and quasi-judicial or administrative adjudicatory powers. The rules and regulations that administrative agencies promulgate, which are the product of a delegated legislative power, to create new and additional legal provisions that have the effect of law, should a. be within the scope of the statutory authority granted by the legislature to the administrative agency, b. be germane to the objects and purposes of the law, and be not in contradiction to, but in conformity with the standards prescribed by law conform to and be consistent with the provisions of the enabling statute in order for such rule or regulation to be valid. In questioning the validity or constitutionality of a rule or regulation issued by an administrative agency, a party need not expose administrative remedies before going to court. This principle applies only where the act of the administrative agency concerned was performed pursuant to its quasi-judicial function and not when the assailed act pertained to its rulemaking or quasi-legislative power. In like manner, the doctrine of primary jurisdiction applies only where the administrative agency exercises its quasi-judicial or adjudicatory function. Rulemaking or quasi-legislative power It is the power to make rules and regulations which results in delegated legislation that is within the confines of the granting statute and the doctrine of non-delegability and separability of powers. 
kinds of administrative rules and regulations. There are two, legislative and interpretative. Legislative designed to implement a primary legislation by providing the details thereof before it is adopted. There must be hearing and must be published. Interpretative designed to provide guidelines to the law which the administrative agency is in charge of enforcing it. Uh, it need not be published. In the case of Islao versus COA, administrative regulations and policies enacted by administrative bodies to interpret the law have the force of law and are entitled to great respect. In CIR versus CA, in Misamis Oriental Association of Cocoa Traders Incorporated versus Department of Finance Secretary, the court expressed a legislative rule is in the nature of subordinate legislation designed to implement a primary legislation by providing the details thereof in the same way that uh, laws must have the benefit of public hearing. It is generally required that before a legislative rule is adopted, there must be hearing. In addition, such rule must be published. On the other hand, interpretative rules are designed to provide guidelines to the law which the administrative agency is in charge of enforcing. When an administrative rule is merely interpretative in nature, its applicability needs nothing further than its bare issuance for it gives no real consequence more than what the law itself has already prescribed. When upon the other hand, the administrative rule goes beyond merely providing for the means that can be pass that can facilitate or render least in uh, cumbersome the implementation of the law, but substantially adds to or increases the burden of those governed. It behoves the agency to accord at least to choose directly affected a chance to be heard and thereafter to be duly informed before the new issuance is given the force and effect of law. RMC 37-93 cannot be viewed simply as a corrective measure. The BIR did not simply interpret the law. It legislated under its quasi-legislative authority. The due observance of the requirements of notice of hearing and of publication should not have been then ignored. The court is convinced that the hastily promulgated uh, Revenue Memorandum Circular No. 37-93 has fallen short of a valid and effective administrative issuance. In Peralta versus CSC, when an administrative or executive agency renders an opinion or issues a statement of policy, it merely interprets or pre-existing or interprets a pre-existing law, and the administrative interpretation of the law is at best advisory, for it is the courts that finally determine what the law means. It has also been held that interpretative regulations need not be published. Administrative construction, if we may repeat, is not necessarily binding upon the courts. Action of an administrative agency may be disturbed or set aside by a prejudicial or by the judicial department if there is an error of law or abuse of power of, or lack of jurisdiction or grave abuse of discretion clearly conflicting with either the, the letter or the spirit of a legislative enactment. In Melendres versus Comelec, a formal trial-type hearing is not at all times in all instances essential to due process. It is enough that the parties are given fair and reasonable opportunity to explain their respective sides of the controversy and to present evidence on which a fair decision can be based. In Eastern Telecom International Communication, in cases where the dispute concerns the interpretation by an agency of its own rules, we should apply only these standards. 1. Whether the delegation of power was valid. 2. Whether the delegation was within the delegation. And if so, 3. Whether it was a reasonable regulation under a due process test. The requisites for validity. 
there are two, completeness and sufficient standard test. In completeness test, it must set forth therein the policy to be executed, carried out, or implemented by the delegate. In sufficient standard test, the limits of which are sufficiently determined or determinable to which the delegate must conform in the performance of his functions. In the case of Daganit Al versus Philippine Racing Commission, the validity of an administrative issuances hinges on compliance with the following requisites. 1. Its promulgation must be authorized by the legislature. 2. It must be promulgated in accordance with the prescribed procedure. 3. It must be within the scope of the authority given by the legislature. And 4. It must be reasonable. All the prescribed requisites are uh, met as regards the question issuances. Pell Racom's authority is drawn from PD number 420. The delegation made in the presidential decree is valid. Pell Racom did not exceed its authority and the issuance are fair and reasonable. Petitioners also question the supposed delegation by Pell Racom of its rulemaking power to MGCI and PRCI. There is no delegation of power to speak of between Pell Racom as the delegated or as the delegator and MCI, MGCI. And PRCI as delegates. The PILACOM directive is merely instructive and character. As a rule, the issuance of rules and regulations in the exercise of an administrative agency of its quasi-legislative power does not require notice and hearing. In Abilia Jr. vs. Civil Service Commission, this court had the occasion to rule that prior notice and hearing are not essential to the validity of rules or regulations issued in the exercise of quasi-legislative power since there is no determination of past events or facts that have to be established or ascertained. As for the third requisite, the assailed guidelines prescribe the procedure for Monitoring and Eradicating EEI or EIA. These guidelines are in accord with PILRACOM's mandate under the law to regulate the conduct of horse racing in the country. Anent the four requisites, the assailed guidelines do not appear to be unreasonable or discriminatory. In fact, all horses tabled at the MGCI and PRCI's premises underwent the same procedure. Authorized by Congress, Tayog Rural Bank versus Central Bank. Nowhere in RE 720 is the Monetary Board authorized to meet out on rural banks an additional penalty rate on their past due accounts with appealant. As correctly stated by the trial court, while the Monetary Board possesses broad supervisory powers, nonetheless, the retroactive imposition of administrative penalties cannot be taken as a measure supervisory in character. Administrative rules and regulations have the force and effect of law. There are, however, limitations to the rule-making power of administrative agencies. A rule shaped out by jurisprudence is that when Congress authorizes promulgation of administrative rules and regulations to implement given legislation, all that is required is that the regulation be not in contradiction with it but conform to the standards that the law prescribes. Hence, an administrative agency cannot impose a penalty not so provided in the law, authorizing the promulgation of the rules and regulations, much less one that is applied retroactively. In Executive Secretary versus uh, Southwing Heavy Industries, EO-156 satisfied the first requisites of a valid administrative order. It has both constitutional and statutory basis. Delegation of legislative powers to the President is permitted in Section 28, Paragraph 2, Article 6 of the Constitution. The relevant statutes to execute these provisions are 1. The Tariff and Custom Code 2. Executive Order Number 226, the Omnibus Investment Code of the Philippines and 3. Republic Act Number 8800, otherwise known as the Safeguard Measures Act or the SMA. 
there are thus explicit constitutional and statutory permission authorizing the President to ban or regulate importation of articles and commodities into the country. And the second requisite, that is, that the order must be issued or promulgated in accordance with the prescribed procedure, it is necessary that the nature of the administrative issuance is properly determined. As in the enactment of laws, the general rule is that the promulgation of administrative issuances does not require previous notice and hearing, the only exception being where the legislature itself requires it and mandates that the regulation shall be based on certain facts as determined at an appropriate investigation. This exception pertains to the issuance of legislative rules as distinguished from interpretative rules which give no real consequence more than what the law itself has already prescribed and are designed merely to provide guidelines to the law which the administrative agency is in charge of enforcing. A legislative rule, on the other hand, is in the nature of subordinate legislation crafted to implement a primary legislation. In CIR versus CA and CIR versus Emilowellier uh, Pawnshop Incorporated, the court enunciated the doctrine that when administrative rule goes beyond merely providing for the means that can facilitate or render less cumbersome the implementation of the law and substantially increases the burden of those governed, it behoves the agency to accord at least to those directly affected a chance to be heard and thereafter to be duly informed before the issuance is given the force and effect of law. In the instant case, AO-156 is obviously a legislative rule as it seeks to implement or execute primary legislative enactments intended to protect the domestic industry by imposing a ban on the importation of a specified product not previously subject to such prohibition. The importation ban runs afoul the third requisite for a valid administrative order. To be valid, an administrative issuance must not be ultra-virus or beyond the limits of the authority conferred. It must not supplant or modify the Constitution, its enabling statute, and other existing laws. For such is the sole function of the legislature which the other branches of the government cannot usurp. The subject matter of the laws authorizing the President to regulate or forbid importation of uh, used motor vehicles is the domestic industry EO-156, however, exceeded the scope of its application by extending the prohibition on the importation of used cars to the Freeport, which RA-7227 considers to some extent a foreign territory. The domestic industry which the EU seeks to protect is actually the customs territory. The prescription in the importation of used motor vehicles should be operative only outside the pre-fort and the inclusion of said zone within the ambit of the provision is an invalid modification of RA-7227. Indeed, when the application of an administrative issuances modifies existing laws or exceeds the intended scope, as in the instant case, the issuance become void not only for being ultra-virus but also for being unreasonable. As to the fourth requisite, there is no doubt that the issuance of the ban to protect the domestic industry is a reasonable exercise of police power. In exercise of delegated police power, the executive can therefore validly prescribe the importation of these vehicles. The problem, however, lies with the respect to the application of the importation ban to the free fort. The court finds no logic in the all-encompassing application of the assail provision to the free fort, which is outside the customs territory. As long as the used motor vehicles do not enter the customs territory, the injury or harm sought to be prevented or remedied will not arise. The application of the law should be consistent with the purpose of and reason for the law. Ratione at lex at at lex. When the reason for the law ceases, the law ceases. It is not the letter alone, but the spirit of law also that gives it life. In sum, the court finds that Article 2, Section 13, 
3.1 of EO156 is void insofar as it is made applicable to the presently secured fence in former Subic Naval Base Area. Hence, use motor vehicles that come into the Philippine territory via the secured fence in former Subic Naval Base Area may be stored, used or traded therein, or exported out of the Philippine territory, but they cannot be imported into the Philippine territory outside of the secured fence in former Subic Naval Base Area. In Land Bank versus the Lauta 2017 in Bank case and Section 57 of RA 6657, Congress expressly granted the RTC acting as SAC, the original and exclusive jurisdiction of all petitions, for the determination of just compensation to landowners. Only the legislature can recall that power. The DAR has no authority to qualify or undo that. Within the scope of authority, in Buya, Takeda, Chemicals versus De La Serna. In including commissions in the accommodation of the 13th month pay, the second paragraph of Section 5A of the Revised Guidelines on the Implementation of the 13th month pay law unduly expanded the concept of basic class salary as defined in PD 851. It is a fundamental rule that implementing rules cannot add to or detract from the provisions of the law it is designed to implement. Administrative regulations adopted under legislative authority by a particular department must be in harmony with the provisions of the law they are intended to carry into effect. They cannot widen its scope. An administrative agency cannot amend an act of Congress. In Miners Association of the Philippines versus Pacturan Jr., considering that administrative rule draw life from the statute which they seek to implement, it is obvious that the spring cannot rise higher than its source. While in People versus uh, Masiren, the regulation penalizing electrofishing is not strictly in accordance with the fisheries law under which the regulation was issued because the law itself does not expressly punish electrofishing. In a prosecution for a violation of an administrative order, it must clearly appear that the order is one which falls within the scope of the authority conferred upon the administrative body and the order will be scrutinized with special care. In Romulo, Mabanta, Binabintura, Sayok, and De Los Angeles versus HDMF, uh, uh, when the Board of Trustees of the HDMF required in Section 1, Rule 7 of the 1985 Amendment to the IRR of RA 7742, that employers should have both provident or retirement and housing benefits for all its employees in order to qualify for exemption from the fund, it effectively amended Section 19 of Philly 1752. And when the board subsequently abolished that exemption through the 1996 amendments, it repealed Section 19 of PD 1752. Such amendment and subsequent repeal of Section 19 are both invalid as they are not within the delegated power of the board. That's the MF cannot, in the exercise of its rulemaking power, issue a regulation not consistent with the law it seeks to apply. In Dar versus uh, Sutton, in the case at bar, we find that the impugned AO is invalid as it contravenes the Constitution. The administrative order sought to regulate livestock farms by indicating them in the coverage of agrarian reform and prescribing a maximum retention limit for their ownership. However, the deliberations of the 1987 Constitutional Commission show a clear intent to exclude inter alia all lands exclusively devoted to livestock, swine, and poultry raising. The court clarified in the Loose Farms case that livestock, swine, and poultry raising are industrial activities and do not fall within the definition of agriculture or agricultural activity. The raising of livestock, uh, swine, and poultry is different from crop or tree farming. It is an industrial, not an agricultural activity. 
In Holy Spirit Homeowners Association versus Defensor, in questioning the validity or constitutionality of a rule or regulation issued by administrative agency, a party need not exhaust administrative remedies before going to court. This principle, however, applies only where the act of the administrative agency concerned was performed pursuant to the quasi-judicial function and not when the assailed act pertained to its rulemaking or quasi-legislative power. The assailed IRR was issued pursuant to the quasi-legislative power of the committee. The petition rests mainly on the theory that the assailed IRR issued by the committee is invalid on the ground that it is not germane to the object and purpose of the statute it seeks to implement, where what is assailed is the validity or constitutionality of a rule or regulation issued by the administrative agency in the performance of its quasi-legislative function, the regular courts have jurisdiction to pass upon the same. Hence, the judicial course to assail its validity must follow the doctrine of hierarchy of courts. A petition for prohibition is also not the proper remedy to assail an IRR issued in the exercise of quasi-legislative function. Prohibition lies against judicial or ministerial functions but not against legislative or quasi-legislative functions where the principal relief sought is to invalidate an IRR. Petitioner's remedy is an ordinary action for its nullification, an action which properly falls under the jurisdiction of the regional trial court, where a rule or regulation has a provision not expressly stated or Containing the statute being implemented, the provision does not necessarily contradict the statute. In Orseo versus Comelec 2010 case, the Comelec's intent in the inclusion of airsoft guns in the firearm and the resultant coverage by the election gun ban avoid the possible use of recreational guns in sowing fear, intimidation, or terror during the election period. Contrary to petitioner's allegation, there is a regulation that governs the possession and carriers of airsoft rifles or pistols, namely PNP Circular Number no. 11 dated December 4, 2007. The inclusion of airsoft guns and air guns in the term firearm and Resolution Number no. 8714 for purposes of the gun banning during the election period is a reasonable restriction. The objective of this is to ensure the holding of free or early honest peaceful and credible elections. However, the court excludes the replicas and imitations of airsoft guns and air guns from the term firearm under resolution number <coughs> because they are not subject to any regulation unlike airsoft guns. In Purisima versus Philippine Tobacco Institute, a reading of section 11 of a uh, RR 17-2012 and Annex D-1 on cigarettes packed by machine of RNC 19-2012 reveals that they are not simply regulations to implement RE 103-51. They are amendatory provisions which require cigarette manufacturers to be liable to pay for more tax than the law allows. The BIR in issuing these revenue regulations created an additional tax liability for packaging combinations smaller than 20 cigarette sticks. In so doing, the BIR amended the law and act beyond the power of the BIR to do. Excise tax on cigarettes packed by machine shall be imposed on the packaging combination of 20 cigarette sticks as a whole and not to individual packaging combinations or pouches of vibes or tens, etc. Observance of prescribed procedure, notice in hearing, and publication. In Republic versus Medina, 
if the commission is empowered to approve provisional rates even without a hearing a fortiori it may act on such rates upon a 60-day notice to persons concerned. In fact, when the provisional rates were approved on May 20, the full 10 days notice had been published. To be sure, Petitioner Gonzalez argues that the proviso applies only to initial, not revised rates. The Public Service Act, however, makes no distinction. It speaks of rates proposed by public services and whether initial or revised, the, these rates are necessarily proposed merely until the Commission approves them. The Public Service Commission practice, moreover, is to hear and approve revised rates without published notice or hearing. The reason is easily discerned. The provisional rates are by their nature temporary and subject to adjustment in conformity with the definitive rates approved. And in the case at bar, the Public Service Commission order uh, of May 20, 1970 so provides. In Masida versus ERB, what must be stressed is that while under Executive Order Number 172, a hearing is indispensable. It does not preclude the Board from ordering ex parte a provisional increase as it did here, subject to its final disposition of whether or not to make it permanent, to reduce or increase it further, to deny the application. Section 3, paragraph E is akin to a temporary restraining order or a writ of preliminary attachment issued by the courts which are given ex parte and which are subject to the resolution of the main case. Section 3, paragraph E and Section 8 do not negate its other or otherwise operate exclusively of the other and that the board may resort to one but not to both of the, of the same time. Section 3E outlines the jurisdiction of board and the grounds for which it may decree a price adjustment subject to the requirements of notice and hearing. Pending that, however, it may order under Section 8 an authority to increase provisionally without need of a hearing subject to the final outcome of the proceeding. In Philippine Consumers Foundation versus Secretary of Dex, we are not convinced by the argument that the power to regulate school fees does not always include the power to increase such fees. In the absence of statutes stating otherwise, this power includes the power to prescribe school fees. No other government agency has been vested with the authority to fix school fees, and as such, the power should be considered lodged with the Dex if it is to properly and effectively discharge its functions and duties under the law. The functions of prescribing rates by an administrative agency may be either a legislative or an adjudicative function. If it were a legislative function, the grant of prior notice and hearing to the affected parties is not a requirement of due process. As regards rates prescribed by the administrative agency in the exercise of its quasi-judicial function, prior notice and hearing are essential to the validity of such rates. When the rules and or rates laid down by administrative agency are meant to apply to all enterprises of a given kind throughout the country, they may partake of a legislative character. Where the rules and the rates imposed apply exclusively to a particular party based upon a finding of fact, then its function is quasi-judicial in character. Is DO number 37 issued by the DEX in the exercise of its legislative function? We believe so. The Cell Department order prescribes the maximum school fees that may be charged by all private school in the country for school year 87 to 88. This being so, prior notice and hearing are not essential to the validity of the issuance. 
In Philippine Communications Satellite Belsos at Kuwas, the order in question which was issued by Respondent Alcoas no doubt contains all the attributes of a quasi-judicial adjudication. Foremost is the fact that said order pertains exclusively to petitioner and to no other. Thus, an immediate reduction in its rates would adversely affect its operations and the quality of its service to that public considering that maintenance requirements the project is still has to undertake and the financial outlay involved. Notably, petitioner was not even afforded the opportunity to cross-examine the inspector who issued the report of this respondent and TC based in its question order. While respondent may fix a temporary rate pending final determination of the application of petitioner, such rate fixing order temporarily sought it may be is not exempt from the statutory procedural requirements of notice and hearing, as well as the requirement of reasonableness. Assuming that such power is vested in intensity, it may not exercise the same in an arbitrary and confiscatory manner. Categorizing such an order or as temporary in nature does not perforce until the applicability of a different rule of statutory procedure than would otherwise be applied to any order on the same matter unless otherwise provided by the applicable law. It is thus clear that with regard to uh, writ uh, fixing respondent has no authority to make such order without first giving petitioner a hearing whether the order be temporary or permanent and it is immaterial whether the same is made upon a complaint, a summary investigation or upon the commission's own motion as in the present case. An order of respondent and TC prescribing reduced rates even for a temporary period could be unjust, unreasonable or even confiscatory, especially if the rates are unreasonably low since the utility permanently loses its just revenue during the prescribed period. In fact, such order is in effect final insofar as the revenue during the period covered by the order is concerned. And Robinicia versus CSC, CSC Resolution Number no. 93-2387, quoted earlier, did not require individual written notice sent by mail to parties in administrative cases pending before the MSPB. Assuming that Robinicia had not in fact sent an individual notice, the fact remains that Resolution Number no. 92-2387 was published in a newspaper of general circulation. The Commission may accordingly be deemed to have complied substantially with the requirement of a written notice in its own resolution. In PTC versus Kuwa, citing Tanyada versus Tovera, DBM CCC number no. 10 has been reissued in its entirety and submitted for publication in the official gazette. Would the subsequent publication thereof care the or cure the defect and retroact to the time that the above-mentioned items were disallowed in audit? The answer is in the negative precisely for the reason that publication is required as a condition precedent to the effectivity of a law to inform the public of the contents of the law or rules and regulations before the rights and interests are affected by the same. From the time the COA disallowed the expenses and audit up to the uh, filing of their in petition, the subject circular may remain in legal limbo due to its non-publication. As was stated in Tanyal Da versus Tovera, prior publication of laws before they become effective cannot be dispensed with for the reason that such omission would offend due process insofar as it will deny the public knowledge of the laws that are supposed to govern it. In JMA versus MTCRB, the Administrative Code of 1987, Particularly, paragraph uh, section 3 thereof expressly requires its agency to file with the Office of the National Administrative Register, owner of the UP Law Center, three certified copies of every rule adopted by it, administrative issuance which are not published or filed with the owner are ineffective and may not be enforced. 
In GMA versus Comelec 2014 case, the petitions question the constitutionality of the limitations placed on aggregate airtime allowed to candidate and political parties as well as the requirements incident thereto, such as the need to report the same and the sanctions imposed for violations. While it is true that the Comelec is an independent office and not a mere administrative agency under the executive department, rules which apply to the latter must also be deemed to similarly apply to the former, not as a matter of administrative convenience but as a dictate of due process. Thus, whatever might have been said in Sayarbiso CA should also apply motatis mutandis to the Comelec when it comes to promulgating rules and regulations which adversely affect or impose heavy and substantial burden on the citizenry. For failing to conduct prior hearing before coming up with the resolution number 9615, said resolution specifically in regard to the new rule on aggregate airtime is declared defective and ineffectual. Resolution number 9615 does not impose an unreasonable burden on the broadcast industry. It is a basic postulate of due process specifically in relation to its substantive component that any governmental rule or regulation must be reasonable in its operations and its impositions. Any restrictions as well as sanctions must be reasonably related to the purpose or objective of the government in a manner that would not work unnecessary and unjustifiable burdens on the citizenry. Contrary to petitioner's contention, the reporting requirement for the COMELEC monitoring is reasonable. It is a reasonable means adopted by the COMELEC to ensure the parties and candidates are afforded equal opportunities to promote the respective candidates or candidacies. Unlike the restrictive aggregate-based airtime limits, the directive to give prior notice is not unduly burdensome and unreasonable, much less could it be characterized as prior restraint since there is no restriction on dissemination of information before broadcast. In the same way that the court finds the prior notice requirement as not constitutionally infirm, it is similarly conclude that the right to reply provision is reasonably and consistent with the constitutional mandate. Fair and reasonable in the case of Lopanco versus CA. Is the RTC of the same category as the Professional Regulation Commission so that it cannot pass upon the validity of the administrative acts of the latter? No. What is clear from PILI 223 creating the PRC is that it is attached to the Office of the President for general direction and coordination. Well settled in our jurisprudence is the view that even acts of the Office of the President may be reviewed by the RTC. In order to invoke the exclusive appellate jurisdiction of the CA, there has to be final order or ruling which resulted from proceedings wherein the administrative body involved exercised its quasi-judicial functions. This does not cover rules and regulations of general applicability issued by the administrative body to implement its purely administrative policies and functions like Resolution Number no. 105 which was adopted by the respondent PRC as a measure to preserve the integrity of licensure examinations. Can this commission lawfully prohibit the examinees from attending review classes, receiving handbook, materials, tips, or the like uh, three days before the date of examination? No. On its face, it can be readily seen that it is unreasonable in that an examinee cannot even attend any review class, briefing conference, or the like, or receive any handout, review material, or any tip from any school, college, or university or any review center or the like, or any reviewer, lecturer, instructor, official, or employee of any of the aforementioned or similar institutions. The unreasonableness is more obvious in that one who is uh, caught committing the prohibited acts even without any ill motives will be barred from taking future examinations conducted by the PRC. 
Furthermore, it is inconceivable how the Commission can manage to have a watchful eye on its and every examinee during the three days before the examination period. It is an axiom and administrative law that administrative authorities should not act arbitrarily and capriciously in the issue of rules and regulations to be valid. Such rules and regulations must be reasonable and fairly adapted to secure the end in view. If shown to bear no reasonable relation to the purposes or purposes for which they are authorized to be issued, then they must be held to be invalid. Resolution number 105 is not unreasonably and arbitrary. It also infringes on the examinee's right to liberty guaranteed by the Constitution. Respondent PRC has no authority to dictate on the reviewers as to how they should prepare themselves for the licensure examinations. Another evident objection to the resolution is that it violates the academic freedom of the schools concerned. Respondent PRC cannot interfere with the conduct of review that review schools and centers believe would best enable their enrollees and rules to meet the standard requires before becoming a full-fledged public accountant. Unless the means or methods of instructions are clearly found to be inefficient, impractical, or riddled with corruption, review schools and centers may not be uh, stopped from helping out their uh, students. The exercise of the power to supervise and regulate legal education uh, is circumscribed by the normative contents of the Constitution itself. That is, it must be reasonably exercised. Reasonable exercise means that it should not amount to control and that it respects the constitutionally guaranteed institutional academic freedom and the city's right to quality and accessible education. Transgression of these limitations renders the power and the exercise thereof unconstitutional. The law schools are left with absolutely no discretion to choose its students at the first instance, in accordance with its own policies, but are dictated to surrender such discretion in favor of a state-determined pool of applicants under pain of administrative sanctions and payment of fines, mandating loose calls to reject uh, or mandating loose calls to reject applications who fail to reach the prescribed PILSAT passing score or those with expired PILSAT eligibility transfer complete control over admission policies from the loose calls to the lab. The right of the institutions then are constricted only in providing additional admissions requirements, admitting of the interpretation that the preference of the school itself is merely secondary or supplemental to that of the state, which is uh, antithetical, antithetical to the very principle of reasonable supervision and regulation. It is settled that the PILSAT, when administered as an aptitude test, is reasonably related to the state's unimpeachable interest in improving the quality of legal education. This aptitude test, however, should not be exclusionary, restrictive, or qualifying as to encroach upon institutional academic freedom. Adjudicatory or quasi-judicial power this is the power to hear and determine questions of fact to which the legislative policy is to apply and to decide in accordance with the standards laid down by the law itself in enforcing and administering the same law. The administrative body exercises its quasi-judicial power when it performs in a judicial manner an act which is essentially of an executive or administrative nature where the power to act in such manner is incidental to or uh, uh, reasonably necessary for the performance of the executive or administrative duty entrusted to it. In carrying out their quasi-judicial functions, the administrative officers or bodies are required to investigate facts or ascertain the existence of facts, hold hearings, weigh evidence, and draw conclusions from them as basis for their official action and exercise of discretion in a judicial nature. In Meralco versus Atilano, 
A preliminary investigation is not a quasi-judicial proceedings and the DOJ is not a quasi-judicial agency exercising quasi-judicial functions when it reviews the findings of a public prosecutor regarding the presence of probable cause. A quasi-judicial agency performs a judicatory function when it awards, determine the rights of a parties and its decisions have the same effects as a judgment of a court. The public prosecutor exercises investigative powers in the conduct of preliminary investigation to determine whether, based on the evidence presented to him, he should take further action by filing a criminal complaint in court. In doing so, he does not adjudicate upon the rights, obligations, or liabilities of the parties before him, since the power exercised by the public prosecutor in this instance is merely investigative or inquisitorial. It is subject to a different standard in terms of stating the facts and the law in its determinations. This is also true in the case of the DOJ secretary exercising her review powers over decisions of public prosecutors. Thus, it is sufficient that in denying a petition for review of a resolution of a prosecutor, the DOJ resolution state the law upon which it is based. We rule, therefore, that the OG resolution satisfactorily complied with constitutional and legal requirements when it stated its legal basis for denying Meralco's petition for review, which is Section 7 of Department Secretary No. 70, which authorizes the Secretary of Justice to dismiss a petition outright if he finds it to be patently without merit or manifestly intended for delay, or when the issues raised therein are too insubstantial to require consideration. In Encinas v. Agustin uh, Jr., in administrative law, a quasi-judicial proceeding involves a. Taking and evaluating evidence, b. Determining facts based upon the evidence presented, and c. Rendering an order or decision supported by the facts proved. The exercise of quasi-judicial functions involves a determination with respect to the matter in controversy of what the law is, what the legal rights and obligation of the contending parties are, and based thereon in the facts obtaining the adjudication of the respective rights and obligations of the parties. The court has laid down the test for determining whether an administrative body is exercising judicial or merely investigatory functions. Adjudication signifies the exercise of the power and authority to adjudicate upon the rights and obligations of the parties. Hence, if the only purpose of an investigation is to evaluate the evidence submitted to an agency based on the facts and circumstances presented to it, and if the agency is not authorized to make a final pronouncement affecting the parties, then there is an absence of judicial discretion and judgment. In this case, analysis of the proceeding before BFE yields the conclusion that they were purely administrative in nature and constituted a fact-finding investigation for purposes of determining whether a former charge for administrative offense should be filed against the petitioner. Administrative due process Jurisdiction in Globe Wireless versus Public Service Commission the Public Service Act vested in the Public Service Commission jurisdiction, supervision, and control over all public services and their franchises, equipment, and other properties. However, Section 5 of RA 4630, the legislative franchise under which petitioner was operating, limited Respondent Commission's jurisdiction over petitioner only to the rate which petitioner may charge the public. The act complained of consisted and petitioner having allegedly failed to deliver the telegraphic message of private respondent to the address and Madrid, Spain. Obviously, such imputed negligence had nothing whatsoever to do with the subject matter of the very limited jurisdiction of the commission over petitioner. 
On the other hand, in the SICDIA versus Board of Power and Waterworks, Respondent Board as Regulatory Board manifestly exceeded its jurisdiction in taking cognizance of and adjudicating the complaints filed by respondents against petitioner. Respondent Board acquired no jurisdiction over petitioner's contractual relations with respondents' complainants as her tenants since petitioner is not engaged in public service nor in the sale of electricity without permit or franchise. In Marino versus uh, Gamilia, the propriety of padlocking the union's office, the relief of pensioner in the civil case is interwoven with the issue of legitimacy of the assumption of office by the respondents in light of the violation of union's constitution and by laws which was then pending before the mid-arbiter. Necessarily, therefore, the trial court has no jurisdiction over the case insofar as the prayer for the removal of the padlocks and the issuance of an injunctive read is concerned. It is settled rule that jurisdiction once acquired continues until the case is finally terminated. The petition with the mid-arbiter was filed ahead of the complaint in the civil case before the RTC. As such, when the petitioners filed their complaint, a coup, jurisdiction over the injunction and the sitting order prayed for had already been lodged with the mid-arbiter. The removal of the padlocks and the access to the office premises is necessarily included in petitioner's prayer to enjoin respondents from performing acts pertaining to union officers on behalf of the union. In observance of the principle of adherence of jurisdiction, it is clear that the RTC should not have exercised jurisdiction over the provisional relief prayed for in the complaint. A review of the complaint shows that petitioner uh, disclosed that the existence of the petition pending before the mid-arbiter and even attached a copy thereof. Unlike the NLRC, which is explicitly vested with the jurisdiction over claims for actual, moral, exemplary, and other forms of damages, the BLR is not specifically empowered to adjudicate claims for such nature arising from intra-union or inter-union disputes. Second, due process. In administrative proceedings, procedural due process has been recognized to include the following 1. The right to actual or constructive notice of the institution of proceedings which may affect a respondent's legal rights. 2. A real opportunity to be heard personally or with the assistance of counsel to present witnesses and evidence in one's favor and to defend one's rights. Third, a tribunal vested with competent jurisdiction and so constituted as to afford a person charged administratively a reasonable guarantee of honesty as well as impartiality and port a finding by said tribunal which is submitted for consideration during the hearing or supported by substantial evidence contained in the records or made known to the parties affected. In Otto versus Comelec, in administrative proceeding, the essence of due process is simply an opportunity to be heard or an opportunity to explain one side or opportunity to seek a reconciliation of the action or ruling complaint of at the hearing before the Comelec an uh, in-bank of petitioner's motion for reconsideration, petitioner was given full opportunity to present his case. He did not present controverting evidence to justify the exclusion of the five election returns. In Garcia versus Pajaro, the city treasurer of the Gopan has the authority to institute disciplinary action against subordinates, officers, or employees. The essence of due process in administrative proceeding is the opportunity to explain one side, whether written or verbal. The constitutional mandate is satisfied when a petitioner complaining about an action or a ruling is granted an opportunity to seek reconsideration. The case of Angtibay versus CIR 
There are cardinal primary rights which must be respected even in proceedings of this character. One, the first of these rights is the right to a hearing which includes the right of the party interested or affected to present his own case and submit evidence in support thereof. Second, not only must the party be given an opportunity to present his case and to adduce evidence tending to establish the rights which he asserts but the tribunal must consider the evidence presented. Third, while the duty to deliberate does not impose the obligation to decide right, it does not imply a necessity which cannot be disregarded, namely that of having something to support its decision, a decision with absolutely nothing to support, it is annuity, a place when directly attached forth. Not only must there be some evidence to support a finding or conclusion, but the evidence must be substantial. Substantial evidence is more than a mere scintilla. It means such relevant evidence as a reasonable mind might accept as adequate to support a conclusion. Fifth, the decision must be rendered on the evidence presented at the hearing or at least contained in the record and disclosed to the parties affected. Six, courts must act on its uh, or his own independent consideration of the law and facts of the controversy and not simply accept the views of a subordinate in arriving at a decision. 7. Courts should in all controversial questions render its decision in such manner that the parties to the proceedings can now uh, the various issues involved and the reasons for the decision rendered. In Domingo versus Rayala, the records of the case indicate that Rayala was afforded all these procedural due process safeguards. Although in the beginning he questioned the authority of the committee to try him, he appeared personally and with counsel and participated in the proceedings. In Rivera versus CSC, in order that the review of the decision of a subordinate officer might not turn out to be a farce, the reviewing officer must perforce be other than the officer whose decision is under review, otherwise there could be no different view of or there would be no real review of the case. The decision of the reviewing officer would be biased view. Inevitably, it would be the same view since being human, he would not admit that he was mistaken in his first view of the case. Given the circumstances in the case at Bans or at Pence, it should have behoved Commissioner Gamindi to inhibit herself totally from any participation in resolving Rivera's appeal to the CSC if we are to give full meaning and consequence to a fundamental aspect of due process. The argument that Commissioner Gamindi did not participate in MSPB's decision of August 2990 is unacceptable. In Corona versus CA, what is prescribed by law and the BIHA case is that all complaints against a PPE official or employee below the rank of assistant general manager shall be filed or filed before the PPE general manager by the proper officials, such as the PPE police or any aggrieved party. The aggrieved party should not, however, be one and the same official upon whose lap the complaint he has filed may eventually fall on appeal. Nemo potest essay simul actor judex. No man can be at once a litigant and a judge unless, of course, in an exceptional case, such official inhibits himself or expresses his willingness at the outset to waive his right to review the case on appeal. In Marcelo versus Bungubung, while rules of procedure do not strictly apply to administrative cases as long as defendant's right to due process is not violated, its liberal application in administrative cases does not allow admission of heresy evidence, that is, affidavits not identified by affiance, as this would violate the constitutional rights of petitioner to due process and his substantive right not be or to be adjudged guilty on the basis of heresy evidence. The fact that no formal hearing took place is not sufficient ground to say that due process was not afforded to Bungubong. 
it is well settled that the administrative proceedings, including those before the Ombudsman, cases may be submitted for resolution on the basis of affidavits and pleadings. The standard of due process that must be met in administrative tribunals allow a certain degree of latitude as long as fairness is not ignored. It is therefore not legally objectionable for being violative of due process for an administrative agency to resolve a case based solely on position papers, affidavits, or documentary evidence submitted by the parties as affidavits of witnesses may take the place of their direct testimonies. Undoubtedly, due process in administrative proceedings is an opportunity to explain one side or an opportunity to seek reconsideration of the action or ruling complained of which requirement was afforded Bungubong. In Paris versus People, due process of law is applied to judicial proceedings, has been interpreted to mean a law which hears before it condemns, which proceeds an inquiry and renders judgment only after trial. Petitioner cannot complain that his right to due process has been violated. He was given all the chances in the world to present his case, and the Sedigan Bayan rendered its decision only after considering all the pieces of evidence presented before it. There is nothing in the Constitution that says that a party in a non-litigation proceeding is entitled to be represented by counsel and that without such representation he shall not be bound by such proceedings. The assistance of lawyers while desirable is not indispensable. In Atienza versus Comelec, Although political parties play an important role in our democratic setup as an intermediary between the state and its citizens, it is still a private organization, not a state instrument. The discipline of members by a political party does not involve the right to life, liberty, or property within the meaning of the due process clause. Members whose rights under their charter may have been violated have recourse to courts of law for the enforcement of those rights, but not as due process issue against the government at any of its agencies. In Katakutan vs. People 2011 case, due process of law is not denied by the exclusion of a irrelevant or irrelevant immaterial or incompetent evidence or testimony of an incompetent witness. It is not an error to refuse evidence which, although admissible for certain purposes, is not admissible for the purpose which counsel states as the ground for uh, offering it. In uh, Melendres, Melendres vs. Uh, PAGC, the denial of petitioner's request for formal investigation is not tantamount to a denial of a right to due process. Petitioner was required to file a counter-affidavit and position paper and later on was given a chance to file two motions for reconsideration of the decision of the deputy ombudsman. The essence of due process in administrative proceeding is the opportunity to explain one side or seek a reconsideration of the action or ruling complaint of. As long as the parties are given the opportunity to be heard before judgment is rendered, the demands of due process are sufficiently met. In Kesumbing versus Rosales, petitioner was given ample opportunity to air her side on the allegations against her after being sufficiently apprised of the allegations against her, she was afforded the chance to submit her written explanation. Unfortunately, the petitioner failed to avail of the right and chose to directly seek the intervention of this court. These circumstances by themselves point to the prematurity of the petition. In Bilio Ignacio uh, versus Gutierrez 2017 in Bank, changing regulations in the middle of the proceedings without reason after the violation has accrued does not comply with fundamental fairness or in the other words due process of law. Exceptions to requirements of notice and hearing. 
1. Summary abatement or nuisance per se. 2. Preventive suspension. 3. Padlocking of uh, filthy restaurants, theater, etc. 4. Cancellation of passport of accused. 5. Summary restraint and levy. And 6. Grant of provisional authority. Administrative appeal and review unless otherwise provided by law or executive order. An appeal from a final decision of the administrative agency may be taken to the department uh, head whose decision may further be brought to the regular courts. Administrative res judicata. San Luis versus CA. The rule of res judicata which forbids the reopening of a matter once judicially determined by competent authority applies as well to the judicial and quasi-judicial acts of public, executive, or administrative officers and boards acting within their jurisdiction as to the judgment of courts having general judicial powers. Indeed, the principle of conclusiveness of prior adjudication is not confined in its operation to the judgment of what are ordinarily known as courts, but it extends to all bodies upon whom judicial powers have been conferred. Hence, whenever any board, tribunal, or person is by law vested with authority to judicially determine a question like the Merit Systems Board of the Civil Service Commission and the Office of the President, for instance, uh, such determination when it has become final is as conclusive between the same parties litigating for the same cause as though the adjudication had been made by a court of general jurisdiction. In Otso versus Kalos, the doctrine of res judicata applies to both judicial and quasi-judicial proceedings. The doctrine actually embraces two concepts. The first is bar by prior judgment under paragraph B of Rule 39, Section 47. And the second is conclusiveness of judgment under paragraph C thereof. In the present case, the second concept, conclusiveness of judgment, uh, applies. A fact or question which was an issue in a former suit and was there judicially passed upon and determined by a court of competent jurisdiction is conclusively settled by the statement therein as far as the parties to that action and persons in privity with them are concerned and cannot be again litigated in any future action between such parties or their privies in the same court or any other court of concurrent jurisdiction on either the same or different cause of action while the judgment remains unreversed by proper authority. It has been held that in order that adjustment in one action can be conclusive as to a particular matter in another action between the same parties or their privies, it is essential that the issue be identical. If a particular point or question is an issue in the second action and the judgment will depend on the determination of that particular point or question, a former judgment between the same parties or their privies will be final and conclusive in the second if the same point or question was an issue and adjudicated in the first suit. Under the principle of conclusiveness of judgment, the identity of causes of action is not required but merely identity of issues. Simply put, conclusiveness of judgment bars the relitigation of particular facts or issues in other uh, litigation between the same parties on a different claim or cause of action. There is no question that the issue of whether petitioner is the owner of other agricultural lands had already been passed upon by the proper quasi-judicial authority, said decision become final and Executory when the Caluses failed to file an appeal thereof after their uh, motion for reconsideration was denied. Applying the rule on conclusiveness of judgment, the issue of whether petitioner is the owner of other agricultural lands may no longer be relitigated. The CA does erred in still making a findings that petitioner is not qualified to be a farmer beneficiary because he owns other agricultural lands. In Ligtas 
versus uh, people. The CA was correct in ruling that the doctrine of res judicata applies only to judicial or quasi-judicial proceedings and not to the exercise of administrative powers. Administrative powers here refer to those purely administrative in nature as opposed to administrative proceedings that take on a quasi-judicial character. Should identity of parties subject matter and causes of action be shown in the two cases, then res judicata in its aspect as a bar by prior judgment would apply. If, as between the two cases, only the identity of parties can be shown but not identical causes of action, then res judicata as conclusiveness of judgment applies. Fact-finding investigative licensing and rate-fixing powers Subido Pahinti Serpe sa Mendoza and Binay Law Office versus CA Kinbang, 2016 Inquisitorial power, which is also known as examining or investigatory power, is one of the determinative powers of an administrative body which better enables it to exercise its quasi-judicial authority. This power allows the administrative body to inspect the records and premises and investigate the activities of persons or entities coming under its jurisdiction or to require disclosure of information by means of accounts, records, reports, testimony of witnesses, production of documents, or otherwise. The power of investigation consists in gathering, organizing, and analyzing evidence, which is useful aid or tool in an administrative agency's performance of its rulemaking or quasi-judicial functions. Notably, investigation is indispensable to prosecution. The confusion on the scope and parameters of the EMLC's uh, investigatory power and whether such sips in into and approximates a quasi-judicial agency's inquisitorial powers lies in the EMLC's uh, investigation and consequent initial determination of whether certain activities are constitutive of anti-money laundering offenses. The enabling law itself, the AMLA, specifies the jurisdiction of the trial courts, RTC and Saligan Bayan over money laundering cases, and delineates the investigative power of the EMLC. Nowhere from the text of the law nor its implementing rules and regulations can we glean that the AMLC exercises quasi-judicial functions whether the actual preliminary investigation is done simply as its behest or conduct by the Department of Justice and the Ombudsman. Plainly, the AMLC's investigation of money laundering offenses and its determination of possible money laundering offenses, specifically its inquiry into certain bank accounts allowed by court order, does not transform it into an investigative body exercising quasi-judicial powers. Hence, Section 11 of the AMLA, authorizing bank inquiry account uh, or uh, bank inquiry court order, cannot be said to be violate uh, its PCMB's constitutional right to procedural due process. In the case of Philippine Inter-Island Shipping Association versus CA, we conclude that EO number 1088 is a valid statute and that the PPA is duty-bound to comply with its provisions. The PPA may increase the rates but it may not decrease them below those mandated by the EO. Finally, the PPA cannot refuse to implement uh, the said EO or alter it as it did in promulgating memorandum circular number 43-86. Much less could the PPA abrogate the rates fix and leave the fixing of rates for pilotage service to the contracting parties as it did through EO number 02-88 section 3. Therefore, the policy was one of governmental regulation of the piloted business. By leaving the matter to the determination of the parties, the PPA jettisoned this policy and changed it to leases fair, something which only the legislature or whoever is vested with lawmaking authority could do. 
Holy Spirit Homeowners Association versus Defensor. The committee's authority to fix the selling price of the lots may be likened to the rate-fixing power of administrative agencies in case of a delegation of rate-fixing power. The only standard which uh, the legislature is uh, uh, or required to prescribe for the guidelines of the administrative authority is that the rate be reasonable and just. However, it has been held that even in the absence of express requirement as to reasonableness, this standard may be implied. In this regard, petitioners do not even claim that the selling price of the lots is unreasonable in subordinate legislation as long as the passage of the rule or regulation has the benefit of a hearing, the procedural due process requirement is deemed complied with, that there is observance of more than the minimum requirements of due process in the adoption of the question IRR is not a ground to invalidate the same, and the RCPI versus NTC. The Public Service Commission found that the application involved in the present petition is actually an application for approval of rates for the digital transmission service facilities which it may approve provisionally and without the necessity of any notice and hearing as provided in Section 16C of the Public Service Act or CA number 146. Well settled is the rule that the Public Service Commission now is empowered to approve provisional rates of utilities without the necessity of a prior hearing. Judicial Review By disallowing reconsideration of the Voluntary Arbitrator's Decision, Section 7 Rule 19 of DO 40-03 and Section 7 of the 2005 Procedure Guidelines went directly against the legislative intent behind Article 262-A of the Labor Code. These rules deny the Voluntary Arbitrator's uh, the chance to uh, correct himself and compel the courts of justice to prematurely intervene with the action of administrative agency entrusted with the adjudication of controversies coming under its special knowledge, training, and specific field of expertise. In this era of clogged court dockets, the need for specialized administrative agencies with a special knowledge, experience, and capability to hear and determine promptly disputes on technical matters or intricate questions of facts subject to judicial review is indispensable. In Industrial uh, Enterprise Incorporated versus CA, we rule that relief must first be obtained in an administrative proceeding before a remedy will be supplied by the courts even though the matter is within the proper jurisdiction of a court. In LRTA versus Albania, an administrative agency who has standing to appeal the CSC's re uh, repeal or modification of its original decision. In such instance, it is included in the concept of a party adversely affected by a decision of the CSC granting the statutory right to appeal. The present rule is that the government party is a party adversely affected for purposes of appeal provided that the government party that has a right to appeal must be the office or agency prosecuting the case. In the Kuikoi versus PNB and the URECCs failed to contemplate a situation where the CSC modified the penalty from dismissal to suspension. The hearing civil servant was not exonerated and the finding of guilt still stood. In these situations, the disciplinary authority should be allowed to appeal the modification of the decision. During the pendency of this decision or on November 18, 2011, the revised rules on administrative cases in civil service or RACs was promulgated. The CSC modified the definition of a party adversely affected for purposes of appeal. 
partly adversely affected refers to the respondent against whom a decision in administrative case has been rendered or to the disciplining authority in appeal from a decision reversing or modifying the original decision. Procedural loss of retroactive application, considering that the right to appeal is a right remedial in nature, we find that Section 4, Paragraph K, Rule 1 of the RACs applied in this case. Petitioner therefore had the right to appeal the decision of the CSC that modified its original decision or dismissal. In Wooden versus uh, CSC, as a general rule, factual findings of administrative agencies such as the uh, Commission on Civil Service that are affirmed by the Commission or, uh, or a Court of Appeals are conclusive of, upon and generally not reviewable by this Court. However, this Court has recognized several exceptions to this rule to wit. When the findings are grounded entirely on speculation, surmises, or conjectures, when the inference made is manifestly mistaken, absurd, or impossible, when there is grave abuse of discretion, when the judgment is based on a misapprehension of facts, when the findings of facts are conflicting, when in making its findings the CE went beyond the issues of the case or its findings are contrary to the admissions of the both the appellant and the appealee, when the findings are contrary to the trial court, when the findings are conclusions without citation of specific evidence on which they are based, when the facts set forth in the petition as well as in the petitioner's main and reply briefs are not disputed by the respondent, when the findings of fact are premised on the supposed absence of evidence and contradicted by the evidence on record, and when the CA manifestly overlooks certain relevant facts not disputed by the parties which, if properly considered, would justify a different conclusion. Exceptions are number uh, four, which when the judgment is based on misapprehension of facts, and number 11, when the CA manifestly overlooks certain relevant facts not disputed by the parties. Fine uh, application here. Petitioner is charged with dishonesty through falsification of PDS. Dishonesty is defined as intentionally making a false statement in any material fact or practicing or attempting to practice any deception or fraud in securing his examination, registration, appointment, or promotion. Thus, dishonesty like bad faith is not simply bad judgment or negligence. Dishonesty is a question of intention. The intent to falsify or misrepresent is inexistent at the time petitioner applied for the PBET when it, he indicated March 1991 under date graduated since he in fact attended the graduation rights on March 24, 1991 at that point in time when he filed uh, up his application for the PIBET, the intent to deceive was absent. He was not asked when he actually completed his course, rather he was merely asked the date of his graduation. In Ombudsman versus Kapulong, whether or not the CE has jurisdiction over the subject matter and can grant reliefs, whether primary or incidental, after the Ombudsman has lifted the subject order of preventive suspension. As a rule, it is the consistent and general policy of the court not to interfere with the Ombudsman's exercise of its investigatory and prosecutory powers. The role is based not only upon respect for the investigatory and prosecutory powers granted by the Constitution to the Ombudsman but upon practicality as well. While it is an established rule in administrative law that the courts of justice should respect the findings of fact of said administrative agencies, the courts may not be bound by such findings of fact when there is absolutely no evidence in support thereof 
or such evidence is clearly, manifestly, and patently insubstantial. And when there is a clear showing that the administrative agency acted arbitrarily or with grave abuse of discretion or in capricious and whimsical manner such that its action may amount to an excess or lack of jurisdiction, these exceptions exist in this case and compel the appellate court to review the findings of fact of the Ombudsman. In the instant case, the subsequent lifting of the preventive suspension order against Kapulong does not render the petition moot and academic. It does not preclude the courts from passing upon the validity of a preventive suspension under such or a, a suspension order. Such order is interlocutory in character and not a final order on the merits of the case. The great party may then seek redress from the courts through a petition for certiorari. Undoubtedly, in this case, the CE aptly ruled that the Ombudsman abused its discretion because it failed to sufficiently establish any basis to issue the order of preventive suspension. Kapulong's non-disclosure of his wife's business interests does not constitute serious dishonesty or grave misconduct. Nothing in the records revealed that Kapulong deliberately placed non-applicable in his cell and despite knowledge about his wife's business interests. As explained by Kapulong, the SEC already revoked the registration and the corporations where his wife was an incorporator, hence he deemed it not necessary to indicate it in his LN. FF Cruz in Company versus Philippine Iron Construction and Marine Works. A conflict between the factual findings of the CE in the trial court only provides prima facie basis for a recourse to the Supreme Court. But before we even give due course to a petition under Rule 45 which raise factual issues, must less undertake a complete re-examination of the records. It is incumbent upon the petitioner to clearly show that manifestly correct findings have been unwarrantedly rejected or reversed by the CE. Both FF Cruz and EMC failed to show that their respective petitions meet this standard. This rule is that the Board of Marine Inquiry's findings are binding and conclusive on the courts when it is supported by substantial evidence. This is consistent with the elementary principle in administrative law that findings of fact by administrative tribunals are conclusive when supported by substantial evidence. In findings, the FF Cruz was guilty of contributory negligence. The CE relied on the factual findings set forth in the BMI report. The pertinent portion of the report detailed how FF Cruz failed to observe the proper standard of diligence in of the imminent arrival of Typhoon Wellpring. In findings that FF Cruz was negligent, the BMI clearly identified the evidentiary basis in support of its conclusion. The CA cannot thus be faulted for relying on the BMI's factual finding to support its uh, own conclusion that FF Cruz was guilty of contributory negligence because such findings are supported by substantial evidence. With regard to the exoneration of EMC, however, the CA correctly disregards certain portions of the BMI report because they were based entirely on conjecture instead of being grounded on substantial evidence. Doctrine of Primary Administrative Jurisdiction Spouses Abijo versus De La Cruz in this era of clogged court dockets, the need for specialized administrative boards or commissions with a special knowledge, experience, and capability to hear and determine promptly disputes on technical matters or essentially factual matters subject to judicial review in case of grave abuse of discretion has become indispensable. The dispute between the contending parties for control of the corporation manifestly falls within the primary and exclusive jurisdiction of the SEC, in whom the law has reserved such jurisdiction as an administrative agency of special competence to deal promptly and expeditiously therewith. Province of Sambuanga del Norte versus CA. 
The doctrine of primary jurisdiction does not warrant a court to arrogate unto itself the authority to resolve a controversy over the jurisdiction over which is initially lodged with an administrative body of special competence. In Euromed Laboratories versus Province of Batangas, the resolution of this case turns on whether it is the CUA or the RTC which has primary jurisdiction to pass upon petitioner's money claim against the Province of Batangas. We rule that it is the CUA which does. Therefore, we deny the petition. The doctrine of primary jurisdiction holds that if a case is, uh, is such that its determination requires the expertise, specialized training, and knowledge of an administrative body, relief must first be obtained in an administrative proceeding before resort to the courts, is had even if the matter may well be within their proper jurisdiction. It applies where a claim is originally cognizable in the courts and comes into play whenever enforcement of the claim requires the resolution of issues which, under a regulatory scheme, have been placed within the special competence of an administrative agency. In such a case, the court in which the claim is sought to be enforced may suspend the judicial process pending referral of such issues to the administrative body for its view or, if the parties would not be unfairly disadvantaged, dismiss the case without prejudice. This case is one over which the doctrine of primary jurisdiction clearly held uh, sway for although petitioner's collection sought for 487,662 pesos was within the jurisdiction of the RTC. The circumstances surrounding petitioner's claim brought it clearly within the ambit of the COAS jurisdiction. First, petitioner was seeking the enforcement of a claim for a certain amount of money against a uh, local government unit. This brought the case within the COAS domain to pass upon money claims against the government or any subdivision thereof under Section 26 of the Government Accounting Code of the Philippines. Second, petitioner's money claim was founded on a series of purchases for the medical supplies of respondents' public hospitals. Petitioners claim therefore involved compliance with applicable auditing laws and rules on procurement. Such matter are not within the usual area of knowledge, experience, and expertise of most judges, but within the special competence of co-auditors and accountants. Thus, it was proper out of fidelity to the doctrine of primary jurisdiction for the RTC to dismiss petitioners' complaint. In heirs of Vidad versus Land Bank, clearly under Section 50 of RA 6657, DAR has primary jurisdiction to determine and adjudicate agrarian reform matters and exclusive original jurisdiction over all matters involving the implementation of agrarian reform except those falling under the exclusive jurisdiction of the DA and the DNR. Further, exception to the DAR's original and exclusive jurisdiction are all petitions for the determination of just compensation to landowners and the prosecution of all uh, uh, criminal offenses under RA 6657, which are within the jurisdiction of the RTC sitting as a special agrarian court. Thus, jurisdiction on just compensation cases for the taking of lands under the RA 6657 is vested in the courts. In Land Bank of the Philippines versus Waikuko, the court upheld the artist's jurisdiction over Waikuko's petition for determination of just compensation even where no summary administrative proceedings was held before the Darab, which has primary jurisdiction over the determination of land violation. In accordance with settled principle of administrative law, primary jurisdiction is vested in the DAR to determine in a preliminary manner the just compensation for the lands taken under the Gradient Reform Program, but such determination is subject to challenge before the courts. The resolution of just compensation cases for the taking of lands under a Gradient Reform is, after all, essentially a judicial function. In the case of Gaugay versus Ignacio, 
Basically, petitioners argue that the doctrine of primary jurisdiction relied upon by the CA in its decision does not apply in the present case because it falls under an exception. The court finds the petition meritorious. Petitioners rely on Board of Commissioners versus De La Rosa, wherein the court ruled that when the claim of citizenship is so substantial as to reasonably believe it to be true, a respondent in a deportation proceeding can seek judicial relief to enjoy respondent BOC from proceeding with a deportation case. The doctrine of primary jurisdiction of petitioners, Board of Commissioners over deportation proceedings is, therefore, not without exception. Judicial intervention, however, should be granted in cases where the claim of citizenship is so substantial that there are reasonable grounds to believe that the claim is correct. In other words, the remedy should be allowed only on sound discretion of a competent court in a proper proceeding. The present case, correctly pointed out by petitioners and wrongfully found by DCA, falls within the above-cited exception considering that the proof of their Philippine citizenship had been adduced, such as the identification numbers issued by the Bureau of Immigration confirming their Philippine citizenship. In BOC versus De La Rosa, it is required that before judicial intervention is sought, the claim of citizenship of a respondent in a deportation proceedings must so be so substantial that there are reasonable grounds to believe that such claim is correct. In Samar 2, Electric Co-op versus Siludo Jr., the court finds it erroneous on the part of the CA to rule that the doctrine of primary jurisdiction does not apply in the present case. It is true that the RTC has jurisdiction over the petition for a prohibition filed by respondent. However, the basic issue in the present case is not whether the RTC has jurisdiction over the petition for prohibition filed by the respondent. Rather, the issue is who between the RTC and the NIA as primary jurisdiction over the question of the validity of the board resolution issued by Samilco II. Pursuant to its power of supervision and control, the National Electrification Administration, or NEA, granted the authority to conduct investigations and other similar actions, as well as to issue orders, rules, and regulations with respect to all matters affecting electric cooperatives. Certainly, the matter to the validity of the resolution issued by the Board of Directors of Samelco is a matter which affects the said electric cooperative and thus comes within the ambit of the powers of the NEA as expressed in the law. PD 1645 in this regard, the court agrees with petitioner's argument that to sustain the petition for provision filed by respondent with the RTC would constitute an unnecessary intrusion into the NEA's power of uh, supervision and control over electric cooperatives. While the RTC has jurisdiction over the petition for provision filed by respondent, the NEA, in the exercise of its power and supervision and control, has primary jurisdiction to determine the issue of the validity of the subject resolution. Doctrine of Exhaustion of Administrative Remedies In Garcia versus CE, under the Doctrine of Exhaustion of Administrative Remedies, recourse through court action cannot prosper until after all such administrative remedies would have first been exhausted. The doctrine does not warrant a court to arrogate unto itself the authority to resolve or interfere in a controversy that the jurisdiction over which is lodged initially with an administrative body like the PCA Board and its investigative committee of, of special competence. The rule is an element of petitioner's rights of action and is too significant a mandate to be adjusted to be by the courts. In Regina uh, versus Pangasinan College of Science and Technology, first, 
the doctrine of exhaustion of administrative remedies has no bearing on the present case. Petitioner is not asking for the reversal of the policies of PCST. Neither is she demanding it to allow her to take her final examination. She was already enrolled in another educational institution. Second, exhaustion of administrative remedies is applicable when there is competence on the part of the administrative body to act upon the matter complaint of administrative agencies are not courts. They are neither part of the judicial system nor are they the judicial tribunals. Especially, the Chair does not have the power to award damages. Third, the exhaustion uh, doctrine admits of exceptions, one of which arises when the issue is purely legal and well within the jurisdiction of a trial court. Petitioner's action for damages inevitably calls for the application and interpretation of the civil code, a function that falls within the jurisdiction of the courts. In uh, Batelic Dasek 2, Electric Co-op versus Energy Industry Administration Bureau, in the present case, there is nothing in the records to show that petitioner availed of administrative relief before filing a petition for certiorari with the Court of Appeals. It did not appeal the Bureau's resolution to the Secretary of Energy, which under Section 8 in relation to Section 12 of RA 7638 has the power over the Bureau's under the Department. It has not as well suggested any plausible reason for direct recourse to the Court of Appeals against the resolution in, a, in question. Neither has petitioner shown that the instant case falls among the recognized exceptions to the rule on extortion of administrative remedies. Moreover, in light of the doctrine of extortion of administrative remedies, a motion for reconsideration must first be filed before the special civil action for certiorari may be a build of. As found by the appellate court, petitioner has likewise failed to establish that it had filed a motion for reconsideration before the direct recourse to the judicial review, nor has it amply argued why it should be excused from the observance of such requirement. The pivotal issue in this case of whether petitioner, not the NPC, should supply the power needs of PEC requires approve into the technical and financial capability of petitioner to meet the requirements of both power supply of PSC, a question of fact that determines of which is within the expertise of the Bureau. The contention of petitioner had the issue in an pure question of law is therefore hollow. In Dimson, Manila versus Lua, moreover, it appears that compliance with the mandatory protest mechanisms of the law is jurisdictional in character. Section 58 of RA 9184 acquires that there be exhaustion of the statutorily available remedies at the administrative level as a precondition to the filing of a certiorari petition. This requirement points to the mechanism for protest against decision of the back in all stages of the procurement process that are outlined in both the provisions of Section 55 as well as in Section 55 of the implementing rules. The availment of the judicial remedy of certiorari must be made only after the filing of a motion for reconsideration of the back's decision before the said body. Subsequently, from the final denial of the motion for reconsideration, the agreed party must then lodge a protest before the head of the procuring entity through a verified petition paper that formally complies with requirements in Section 55.2 of the IRR-A. Only upon the final resolution of the protest can the agreed party be said to have exhausted the available remedies of the administrative level. In other words, only then can he viably avail of the remedy of certiorari before the proper courts. Uh, Non-compliance with the statutory requirements under Section 58 of RA 9184 constitutes a ground for the dismissal of the action for lack of jurisdiction. 
Accordingly, the party with an administrative remedy must not merely initiate the prescribed administrative procedure to obtain relief but also pursue it to its appropriate conclusion before seeking judicial intervention in order to give the administrative agency an opportunity to decide the matter by itself correctly and prevent unnecessary and premature resort to the court. Exceptions to the Doctrine of Exhaustion of Administrative Remedies There are a number of instances when the doctrine has been held to be inapplicable among the established exceptions are when there is violation of due process, when the issue involved is purely a legal question, when the administrative action is patently illegal amounting to lack or excess of jurisdiction, when there is a stopel on the part of the administrative agency concerned, when there is irreparable injury, when the respondent is a department secretary whose acts as an alter ego of the president, he bears the implied and assumed approval of the latter. When uh, to require exhaustion of administrative remedies would be unreasonable when it would amount to nullification of a claim. When the subject matter is a private land in land case proceedings. When the rule does not provide a plain, speedy, and adequate uh, remedy. And when there are circumstances indicating the urgency of judicial intervention and also in co-warranto uh, proceedings and when the claim involved is small. In Paat versus CA, it was easy to perceive then that the private respondents look up to the secretary for the review and disposition of their case by appealing to him they acknowledge the existence of an adequate and plain remedy still available and open to them in the voluntary course of the law. Thus, they cannot now without violating the principle of exhaustion of administrative remedies seek court's intervention by filing an action for replevin for the grant of the relief during the pendency of an administrative proceedings. Moreover, it is important to point out that the enforcement of forestry laws, rules, and regulations and the protection, development, and management of forest lands fall within the primary and special responsibilities of the DNR. By the very nature of its function, the DNR should be given a free hand unperturbed by judicial intrusion to determine a controversy which is well within its jurisdiction. The assumption by the trial court, therefore, of the replevin suit filed by a private respondent constitute an unjustified encroachment into the domain of the administrative agency's prerogative. The doctrine of primary jurisdiction does not warrant a court to arrogate unto itself the authority to resolve a controversy the jurisdiction over which is initially lodged with an administrative body of special competence. And the uh, IT Foundation of the Philippines versus Comelec here, Comelic itself made the exhaustion of administrative remedies legally impossible or, at the very least, unreasonable. And in any event, the peculiar circumstances surrounding the unconventional rendition of the back report and the precipitate awarding of the contract by the Comelic Bank, plus the fact that it was tracing to have its contract with MPC implemented in time for the elections in May 2004, barely four months away, have combined to bring about the urgent need for judicial intervention, thus prompting this court to dispense with the procedural exhaustion of administrative remedies in this case. Doctrine of Finality of Administrative Action General Rule Decision of administrative agencies must be final before judicial review. Exception Interlocutory orders to protect rights, there is violation of the Constitution, and there is excessive power of uh, or uh, uh, there is excessive use of power.